Welcome to the Catastrophe, where we meander through politics, pop culture, church, and society to consider true human ends and how life may be enchanted. I'm Joel Harrison, laboring under a toddler plague, and I'm joined, as always, by David Taylor. Before we begin, we thought we'd just mark a wonderful occasion. One of our listeners, or we assume he is still listening, he may have dropped off. Who knows? His name is Thomas Meager. I think he lives out in Western Australia. Is that right, Dave? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah. and he just got married um, yeah. a couple of days ago. So, well done. Mm. Good on you. And David, you got married at age 15. So, mm-hmm. what would be your one piece of advice? Um, uh, I don't know. Just um, at least she wasn't related to me. <laughs> <laughs> Good. There's no way to segue from that into our, <laughs> our episode today. We are looking at cultural Marxism. I like to think of this as a journey into the darkness of David's heart, mm. as I've alluded to over a number of occasions. David just recently was in uh, Tasmania where he gave a talk to a bunch of clergy on cultural Marxism and whether it's a thing. Now, what I loved about David going and giving this talk was that our friend, the Reverend Victor Shaw, out in Tasmania, went on the ABC to spruik you, mm. and he described you as a bit underground. <laughs> and he also called me young. Yeah. So he called me a young philosopher, oh, wow. which I don't know whether either those of those are true. But, that you're underground? Yeah. I immediately thought to myself, which Ninja Turtle are you? Oh, I, I actually, I've been thinking about this I uh, <laughs> lately, actually. I've been thinking about some commonalities with some, a few of my favorite figures. Yeah. Um, I, I have to say uh, it's Leonardo. Because you're the leader type? Yeah. yeah. And I, I, I actually, it worries me a bit because yeah. Cyclops is my favorite X-Man yeah. as well. And I wonder whether I long yeah. for Actually, fascist, you're wrong. The strong man. Yeah, Leonardo is not your, your, your shredder. Okay. Yeah, and I'm Krang. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. <laughs> I'm 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 the robot body. Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right, this makes sense to about three people out there who understand 80s cartoons. Yeah. All right, we're moving on. Cultural Marxism. So we're this is we're going to do a two-parter on this one because it's uh, fertile for discussion and leads us into some of the themes of our podcast. Now, um, cultural Marxism has been a term that's been bandied around, especially um, often in um, certain Christian circles, and it's often used to describe those who apparently without reservation claim that society is a power game, which certain categories of identity, woman, ethnic, gender, sexual minorities, and so on, have been oppressed and are consequently in need of emancipation that can take various forms, say speech codes or legislative change or this general milieu they would claim of political correctness. Sometimes it's characterized as somehow postmodern as well in a sort of way of every interpretation being equal. Um, sometimes it's linked to various totalitarianisms, actual communist regimes, for example. Mm-hmm. And this is seen to be bad in a manifold way. So sometimes some people say it silences, especially white men. Um, it can instigate the death of the West, uh, especially in uh, uh, its attacks on free speech. It's taking over institutions or it's the uh, shift towards social justice, which is apparently at issue. Um Now, it can have conspiratorial flavor. So one scholar who um, has investigated the use of this term, uh, cultural Marxism, talks about how it's now entered into the netherworld of garbled memedom. (laughs) Um, And it's in the world of right-wing think tanks where typically all the ills of modern American culture, for example, 
that they identify that, say, feminism, affirmative action, sexual liberation, and so on, decay of traditional education, have been um, attributed to this thing called cultural Marxism. Um, It has arrived, as it were, in our neck of the woods. Uh, Recently, there was an article in uh, the magazine for the Sydney Diocese, um, which opens with the question, what happened to our world? How are we to make sense of it? And apparently what happened to our world is cultural Marxism. (laughs) And this is arisen, this article argues, from the failure of communism, uh, that is the failure of communism, lay within the failure to dismantle the cultural imaginary of Christianity Mm. or simply the West, which is then typically associated with capitalism and liberalism or at least liberal conceptions of toleration. Now, David has actually um, taken the time to think about the cultural Marxism that is uh, being discussed here and what it actually means and who the figures it is appealing to and how this may in fact be a problematic um, category for analyzing what exactly is going on in our world. Mm. Yeah, so I think that the term cultural Marxism, as far as I've been aware of it, has been around for about five years or so in kind of popular discussions. So sometimes the term neo-Marxism is used, but I believe that they're basically people who use these types of term terms are meaning the same thing. So for me, neo-Marxist means a particular thing. It means someone like... Um, uh, Someone like Gramsci, for example, is a neo-Marxist in the, that he's a new Marxist. Well, but I think neo-Marxist, as it's used by these certain types of commentators we're talking about, basically mean, you know, those types um, and lumps them together with uh, the cultural Marxists. So it's been in vogue for a few years. Um, I think Jordan Peterson has made mm. it quite popular. Um, you're a big fan of his works, mm. uh, Joel. He, yeah. he uses the term. Yeah, I love strong men who look for dominance hierarchy yeah. and think of women as lobsters. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and uh, But uh, unfortunately, uh, Jordan Peterson, maybe we should do a um, an episode on the Jordan Peterson Zizek debate because <laughs> it's really interesting, like it's fascinating. But there was a moment where Zizek calls Jordan Peterson out and says, what does anything, what does any of this stuff have to do with Marxism? And it was like a deer in headlights kind mm. of thing. He gave a response to start with and then a rejoinder, and then Zizek gave a rejoinder. But it all kind of collapses a little bit, which is part of the problem here. But um, Christian commentators have gotten really um, hyped up about uh, cultural Marxism in, an, in the negative sense lately as well. So I was sent a book by the Reverend Victor Shaw mm. <laughs> um, called That Hideous Strength. How the West was lost. Mm. What was the inscription? With the cancer of cultural Marxism in the church, the world, and the gospel of oh, change. Oh, this is this is high so, stakes. <laughs> no, I, I was asking you, what did Victor put as an inscription in the book? Was it like, oh right, to David? No, so that was the byline. Sort yourself out. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, this has been a very popular book. It was actually. Um, uh, praised in a article, I think maybe even in Commonweal of First Things or something like that, which I found quite surprising uh, for reasons I'll get into. But it's a book by Melvin Tinker as the writer. In it, he identifies cultural Marxism with the rise of scientism, so the, the <coughs> philosophy, um, oh, the ideology that the scientific method is sufficient to, to explain all phenomena from the macro to the, the, uh, the micro level, um, as well as all of human psychology and things like that. Um, at the expense of kind of the human spirit. 
And in that, he's drawing on C.S. Lewis's work called That Hideous Strength, which is a novel at the end of a, I think it's the Cosmic Trilogy, um, which is all about how aliens are taking over the university, which might give you a, a sense of where he's coming from as a, as a writer. Um, and he's, he's also drawing on the ideas of uh, Lewis's other work, The Abolition of Man. So this idea that 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 humanity has become divorced of its kind of spirit um, or its, its kind of inner... Um, emotive life um, at the expense of this over hyper rationality and over intellectualism which i find strange right as as a way to start off a book about what's wrong with cultural marxism because the people he goes on to identify as cultural marxists who i'll talk about in a sec the, the frankfurt school that was one of their chief concerns <laughs> was the 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 rise of positivism in the west and phenomenology in the uh, in in uh positivism in the anglophone world and phenomenology in the continental world as as both being this this kind of deadening of the human spirit and uh, an assault on subjectivity um but there's no no nev, never an, a a acknowledgement that oh actually the cultural marxists here uh, at least if, if that's what we're calling the frankfurt school that that's their project as well he doesn't seem to actually get that that's what they were trying to do um critique the like the loss of libido is as what Marcuse would say. He also links um, uh, cultural Marxism to his second chapter is about the Tower of Babel and he sees cultural Marxism as this Babel-like aspiration towards good godhood on the part of humanity um, expressed specifically in the cultural impulse to generate new realities through language. Um, and this in turn is coupled with this um, communistic understanding of identity. So for Tinker... And you see this in Peterson as well. The problem with cultural Marxism is that it, it reduces identity to group identity rather than individual identity. And Tinker reads the Old Testament narrative as you start with Adam and Eve, named individuals, um, and then by the time you get to Babel, humanity is a collective identity. Wow. I think that's a strange way mm. of interpreting mm. or reading those passages. But nonetheless, um, that's the birth, Babel is somehow the birth of identity politics mm. um, for, for Tinker. He also relates cultural Marxism to an assault on the uh, institution of the family uh, as advocated by Frankfurt School scholars like Herbert Marcuse, uh, as well as laissez-faire sexuality, a redefinition of gender identity, coercive identity politics, and um, an attempt to undermine free speech and, uh, and freedom of religion. And finally, and I think, this is, <clears throat> I think this is actually quite crucial to where these people are coming from, he sees in uh, cultural Marxism at work in the church in the rejection of Christ's salvific work or the, the gospel as they would understand it. Um, they, he, they see cultural Marxism as a replacement within the church uh, of that work with a gospel of social change. Mm. Um, so somehow reorientating society to make it more just is, is, um, uh, is in competition with the Individual transformation yeah. of the individual soul. Yes, and, right. and so individual redemption. What I would describe as a certain under-realized ecclesiology maybe. or mm. um, Now, interestingly, what you've just described, some of those things I can pick up and I can, and I can, and I can see where they come from. Yeah. So even to take your focus upon technical reason mm. and, and technique to, of mastery of society, yeah. um, there clearly is, and now current context, yes. people, academics, activists, whoever, um, yeah. politicians and so on, that think law is the solution. 
yes. continually, right? Yeah. So more law is the way to regulate people to make them better or uh, more just in yeah. really relationships with one another. And that interpersonal relationships should always be mediated by the law, for example. Yeah. So there's a certain um, technique of mastery that goes on there. So there are real things happening here, mm-hmm. right? Um, you know, or... Um, but there are actually things that the that that the Frankfurt School mm. actually pick up on. Right, yeah. And are, are actually deeply, which actually makes me wonder how deeply have they read the text that they're right. critiquing. Right, yeah. right. But there are some real, yeah. you, you wouldn't, you, you, you yes. do think there's some real things. Yeah, yeah. So I, I think um, people um, are speaking, tend to be speaking out of what I see as a place of deep anxiety, um, particularly anxiety around rapid change. So if you think about the changes in our society that have happened since you and I left high school 50 years ago, <laughs> um, um, we've had rapidly changing values. Um, if you think about the kinds of horrible language that we might have used at high school um, and the now recognising the untold harm that that, that right. language would have performed, that's quite a shock to people of a particular age. I thought you were just going to talk about how there hasn't been a good Star Trek series since oh, we right. high school. But yeah. Whatever, right? Discovery is all right, isn't it? That's no, average. Uh, people also feel like they're being uh, silenced as well. So they, there's an anxiety around, um, okay, if I have a conservative view of sexuality, um, I'm now considered hateful for saying that and things like that. And so there's a fear around um, not just my right to say it perhaps, perhaps they'd also think um, um, I'm compelled by my conscience to speak out about this in my current age, not thinking of any examples <laughs> in particular. Um, and then all of a sudden all these people think I'm hate, hateful for saying, you know, it's pretty full on stuff. Um, and then there's like people being accused of hatred for these views. People feel generally, and this is where I'm kind of more sympathetic, people feeling like there's a general sense of people feeling left behind by the by the mainstream culture. And, you know, this you can see this especially um, in kind of poorer or more precarious parts of our economy Mm. um, where people are seeing all these kind of incredibly affluent cosmopolitan types um, who have secure jobs and resources suddenly also telling them the kind of discourse that they can use. So you can kind of understand where they're coming from there, but they're also left out of feeling left out of kind of cultural mainstream conversation. And there's a kind of sense of that people uh, supposedly live in a time of heterogeneous freedom, right? Uh, but at the same time feel increasingly constrained by um, policy, code, yeah. law, and so on, that homo- that homogenizes. Yeah. So we live in this paradox of supposed complete freedom and heterogeneity, yeah, yeah. But, but also homogeneity that then invades our lives and yeah, yeah. as well. And, and an, incre- an incredible um, amount of statism as well. Right. So the, the state is getting more and more Leviathan. It's becoming, um, at least as these people would perceive it, more and more invasive upon us, um, you know, and a case could be made that our our kind of the, the type of autonomy that we believe in as a culture now requires this heavy-handed state yeah, although and, I, and a, I doubt a heavy that, bureaucracy. I doubt that complain about the number of surveillance cameras that yeah. exist in different parts of our city though. Yeah. Mm. Or, yeah, or, you know, thinking back to McCarthyism or something right. like that as well, which okay. is part of what's left out. So, so all okay, I'm saying so is there there's, are, there's there stuff are things, there. But there's n- stuff that this is pointing to is but, all I'm but saying. But this has been identified with cultural Marxism. Yeah. So what then is this cultural Marxism? Yeah, So and this is the problem. Uh, and you've probably already picked up on me, uh, <laughs> picked up on my 
attitude towards the use of this term, uh, it's it's difficult to say that it points to anything meaningful mm. in that it's pointing to such a broad set of socio-political and intellectual structures and currents, um, many of which contradict each other, that I don't think it's a meaningful phrase. It doesn't point to any reality in a significant way. At best, it's pointing to a vibe mm. that's uh, that's present in our culture. And I, if I'm kind of, maybe I'm jumping the gun a bit here, but it's it's just completely misidentifying the sources of the cultural changes that these people feel so threatened by as well. Uh, we'll be talking a bit more about that next episode. Um, they also There's also a lot of kind of conceptual and historical confusion that goes along with this discourse. So writers like Tinker, who wrote That Hideous Strength, uh, seem to flick unknowingly between talking about actual Marxists, so people like Gramsci, um, at, to talking about kind of critical theorists or the Frankfurt School scholars, people like Marcuse, who were actually kind of cri- critical of Marxism as a meta narrative and things like that. And there seems to be no recognition of the nuanced, uh, like that, the, the, the profound differences between these different schools of thought, which again makes, suggests to me that there hasn't been a lot of study mm. behind this. There's not been a lot of deep research um, in a lot of this discourse. Um, so I think it does gesture towards mainly a vibe. So they're thinking about things like all these young people are concerned with your identity politics, uh, your your transgender um, ideology, things like same-sex marriage, um, things like student groups, no platforming people, all that stuff that seems to be all new and uh, very uh, in in our faces. Um, this is that's just right. that stuff is somehow cultural. Okay, Marxism. and so then then people associate this with what's known and uh, as the Frankfurt School yeah. and in its most conspiratorial vein yeah. has this notion that in the 30s and 20s they all fled Germany and so on and went to America with the explicit purpose of undermining the family yeah. and disrupting the entire institutions yeah, yeah, yeah. of the West. But what then, so the Frankfurt School is the is yeah. the, is the the sort of, um, you know, the baddie yeah. in this narrative. Yeah. So you, what? how would you characterize um their 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 shtick their yeah. thing. So um to like to to, <laughs> to keep on that point for a bit, it has to be acknowledged that the the term, as far as I've been able to work out, the term cultural Marxism was first used by a conspiracy theorist mm. in a book called The Secrets of the Bilderberg yeah. Society, uh, which where where he claimed that there was a cabal of Jewish intellectuals that were trying to overturn American values mm. and and kind of colonize us. And the term cultural Marxism was recently used in the manifesto of a gunman who shot up a synagogue in the in LA, um, which should give us pause a little bit to think about whether we want to be associated <laughs> with this term as as the church. So that and and that's not to say if you've used this term at all in the in the past that you're somehow a closet anti-Semite. No take backs. But it's uh, <laughs> but it's something worth dwelling on. But the Frankfurt School, um, who didn't use the term cultural Marxism. Um, they were a group of left-wing intellectuals who formed in the early 20th century. They did most of their writing in the interwar period, um, so between World War One and World War II. Um, and they were seeking to, uh, so, you know, some of what my favourite thinkers were connected with this school, not that I kind of agree fully with them, but 
not not that I should have to say that. Um, but thinkers like Adorno, um, Theodore Adorno, Max Horkheimer, Herbert Marcuse, Walter Benjamin, who's one of my intellectual heroes. I think he's um, the strongest of the thinkers, although he was never formally a member. And the, the project basically was an attempt to understand <coughs> why it was, as far as they were concerned, why it was that people in the West were so complacent about their, uh, their exploitation and oppression by their economic and political system. So they wanted to understand what stops people rising up and acknowledging that they're oppressed and doing something about it mm. um, in the way that Marx kind of predicted that they would, that inevitably um, people would be become conscious of their, their exploitation and seize the mean of productions. That didn't happen. Um, so why? The answer to this was that there was a whole matrix of cultural institutions, both literal institutions like the church the, uh, or families, um, other more abstract things like the arts industry and things like that, but also um, conceptual uh, institutions as well, um, all of which serve to stop people being um, either aware um, of their exploitation or to believe that their exploitation serves a particular purpose. So if we think about the Hollywood um, studio system, in, um, in the Frankfurt School, like people like Adorno would say, that exists to teach you that if you work hard enough, you might be in a horrible situation now, there might be a huge depression going on and with mass unemployment, but eventually um, we will... You, you will get the American dream. Mm. That's the social function of that institution. Uh, so they sought to identify um, ways in which uh, institutions that we consider basically natural, so things like the family, marriage, and things like that. We can't conceive of human community and life um, without those things. They sought to demonstrate how those things were kind of constructed, um, constructed with a particular purpose, uh, to serve particular interests, particularly the interests of a dominant class, um, and show how these things um, are there to pre present, uh, prevent consciousness of exploitation and oppression. And so they developed this whole methodology, although each of their methodologies is radically different. So even I feel bad now saying that that's their project because they're such a very mm. variegated thinkers. But the, the, the basic idea is they're wanting to do a deep system, systemic critique of all of the institutions of our culture um, uh, to get us thinking about the power games that are going on behind them. Right. So that's the general idea. So there's there's a couple of points there, right? So one is that there would be differences yeah. um, between, say, that general thematic you're pointing out yeah. and how, um, say, Christians would typically think of something. So if you think of um, cultural institutions like marriage and family and mm. so on as materialistically as yep. material that is therefore constructed yep. right and that means that it in some sense is arbitrary yep. and in, includes within it oppression and so yep. now we might say something like that could be true mm -hmm. right like some marriages are clearly oppressive and so mm -hmm. on but as a reality because we don't think it's simply constructed and simply yes. material but is somewhat given also yeah it has a reality that is beyond the person yeah. themselves and it is created for a good reason yeah so there are tensions right yeah so yeah for example um 
I believe in the concept of nature, mm. that some, some things are natural and other mm. things are not. Um, I believe that family is a natural institution. I don't believe it's purely a construct um, and, um, and things like that. But the thing I find attractive about this approach to things is, I mean, I discovered critical theory, which, which is the methodology that kind of comes out of the Frankfurt School um, as an approach to inquiry about um, social structures. Um, I found it attractive because I entered uh, uh, university as a, as a Christian and um, found it very difficult to um, integrate my faith with what I was learning in philosophy. Um, and I was so certain that the reason that no one believed in God wasn't that some argument had been lost. I, I began to see it as actually there's something about the structures of our culture mm. that make um, belief in God problematic. And so, you know, I just ended up discovering your, your, your Charles Taylors and your Alistair McIntyre's and things like that. But the people that actually um, helped me in this situation was the one course where we got to look at critical theory and Marxism and things like that. I started reading um, uh, these critical theorists and they were showing me that the way in which our structure, our society structures knowledge isn't inevitable. There are alternative ways of putting together knowledge. And that made me think, oh, right. So maybe secularism is actually, or maybe modernity is actually up for questioning. Um, now, the Frankfurt School scholars uh, go in a different direction to what I go to. But as far as the tools that they have available wow. to think about how does capitalism shape the way that I interact with the mm. world and imagine um, uh, imagine different possibilities or ways of being in the world, um, that is, was incredibly emancipatory for me. Um, and it opened the door for me to then explore orthodoxy. And that's it's in a new kind way. of ironic in ways because growing up in conservative circles, I mean, conservative Christian circles, um, these were contexts where it was constantly rammed home to you yeah. that watching certain films and participating in certain cultural products yeah. will shape you in a way that means you are less open to God. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. That, that was kind of part of the whole yeah. narrative, which is kind of what you're saying here yeah. as well. <clears throat> you know, the idea that we, uh, we one of the, re like you said, it's not necessarily that an argument has been lost. Mm. It's that people are indifferent. Yes. Or, you know, sopor there's a soporific yeah. effect within our culture because we're disciplined to be, um, understand ourselves as ultimately consumers and yeah. to pursue our satisfaction yeah. in that manner. Or, or, and we'll talk about this a bit next episode. So for one of the things that um, Adorno and Marcuse um, recognize in capitalism is a ep epistemological approach um, of instru <laughs> instrumentalization. So human, human <clears throat> beings can only know the kinds of things that they make and can make use of. How are we meant to have knowledge of God in a capitalist society that only has instrumental knowledge? Right. Um, that's a profound insight that I got from the, the Frankfurt School. Um, and to just dismiss them as, oh, well, they're against free speech and uh, sex maniacs, uh, I, I find it well, offensive. Well, okay, that. so that, that was an interesting one. So if we go to this um, article that was in um, Southern Cross, um, and I what I found interesting there was, um, you know, you can see even just even on the sort of very bare bones that's given in that article, mm. that there are clearly things that I think are actually agreeable in this school, yeah. but they don't necessarily go in a radical direction, Christian direction that I would want, yes. right? So um, he, uh, the author pointed to Marcuse and Marcuse's statement about make love, not war, mm. and the claim that 
we must re-eroticize society because yeah. capital, capitalism has de-eroticized the body, yeah. Yeah. right? So we must engage in a kind of re-eroticizing. Now, from what I understand, you tell me if I'm wrong, it sounds like Mark Hughes is taking that in a more libidinal direction, yes. right? And that ha- in the Freudian sense. In, yeah. yeah, and that has a, a sense, that has a sense, I don't think it's very radical because I think it creates a certain bourgeois ethic of of kind of uh, yeah. free in my, yeah. both my sexual exploits and my consumer exploits, right? Yeah. But um, but I think he's not wrong when he says capitalism de-eroticizes, yes. right? Because clearly we now exist in a world in which Sex, for example, is understood as of value within a capitalist system mm. because of the exchange value we give yeah. it, because we will it to have value as and, opposed to it having And it's industrialized as well. Right, so it's industrialized. Um, so you have actual markets yeah. for it. Yes. But then also our interactions with each other yeah. are um, not erotic. You yeah. know, if you understand erotic as the truly desiring yes. right, of the other person for themselves, yeah. right, that builds together in a mutual love. Yeah. Um, and it's also, um, yeah, so much could be said about this, but it's actually a point that C.S. Lewis makes right. in The Abolition of Man as well, um, where he talks about men without chests, that we're trying to generate this culture of, of people that have lost the kind of anima, um, the human anima within them and to and being incorporated into this rationalistic machine. So, Well, even just I thought as well, the rise of biotechnology. Oh, yeah. So the rise of biotechnology, removing procreation, uh, from sex and turning it into a market industry, right? Yeah. That is the de-eroticization that takes place through a capitalist system. So I'm reading this article and thinking, sure, I might not go in all the same directions, yeah. but why is that the problem? And again, also Mark Hughes, he uh, refers to how Mark Hughes refers to a certain paradox of yeah. liberal toleration, and or not even a paradox, so he says liberal toleration flattens out yes. all forms of speech. Yeah. Um, so making so them all free equal. speech is a, is a tool of the oppressor. Right, so, because all speech is equal, right? Yeah. So uh, certain speech acts don't matter, and, and that some speech act, the speech act that is oppressive is as equal to the speech act that yeah. is emancipatory or um, yeah. pointing towards the good. Now that Surely is right, right? Is right. Marcuse <laughs> is pointing to there. It's a paradox of liberalism, yeah. right? That it, it, it says you take this in the religious liberty context. We now understand religious liberty as, say, a freedom of conscience or the right to pursue one's own self-determination, identity, or conception of the good. That is a flattening out that means you cannot give particular significance to a particular religious speech act or a particular religious manifestation, right? There's a flattening that takes place there. That that means all of these are equal, and so all must be equally regulated by the law, right? Yeah. Now, what, so what Mark Hughes is pointing to, whether his, he comes up with a solution or something that's right or not, mm. But it's it is a genuine problem yeah. that he's identifying. Yeah. So I I think it's it's fascinating in this in this article as well because in both those examples I've identified, one I'm saying yeah capitalism is a problem for de-eroticizing mm. the bottle body, and the other one is I'm saying liberalism does present this paradox mm. of toleration in which eventually it works itself out to not tolerating mm. right um, strong conceptions of religious belief and so mm. on. But this article seems to be saying these people are problematic for those very reasons yeah. that they're attacking capitalism and liberalism yeah, yeah. right so it's kind of yeah, like a, it's kind of like oh no the west is under attack because they thought of capitalism and liberalism as a problem yeah. and i'm going why do i i don't have a ball in that game yeah yeah <laughs> absolutely and we're going to talk a lot about that in the next episode so to conclude i think two things worth saying one of them is i think uh, uh, people who talk about the frankfurt school 
um, in this way radically overemphasize how much people are paying attention to the Frankfurt School anymore. Um, as I said, I did um, seven years of philosophy at Sydney Uni and had one subject where we looked at anything to do with any of these people, mm. um, Whereas, which is surprising for people because they assume I go to Sydney Uni, I just sit around reading Marx and singing the International um, every every day. But the, the, it's just very passe. If there is any residue um, of this, of the Frankfurt School's um, approach or to critical theory in contemporary public discourse, I would say for the very reason, it's a reason that the Frankfurt School themselves identified is that uh, capitalism is incredibly good at taking grounds for dissent or people who are in a position of dissent and co-opting them into the capitalist system. And if there is a residue of the ideas of the Frankfurt School, it's because of that capitalism has actually co-opted mm. some of the language of the Frankfurt School into itself. So liberalism, capitalism has absorbed um, of its dissenters as it always does, uh, which is one of the great insights of the Frankfurt School. In the, and, you know, I would say in a similar way that they have with Christianity uh, in many ways. To, to finish with, as a segue into our next episode, people, uh, as I said at the beginning, see cultural Marxism as problematic because it represents an alternative to gospel. Uh, so it's a gospel of social change, as Tinker would say. This presumes that the work of reorientating society, challenging uh, social imaginaries, social structures, they see this work to be somehow distinct or in competition with Christ's work in the world. Yet I would say, and this is what we're going to be talking about next week, I would say that if we're going to take the re-evangelization of the West seriously, it actually requires a fundamental reorientation of our social imaginary in order to make orthodoxy intelligible at all. Um, and so it actually, the salvific work of Christ, not, not that, yeah, in some way making the gospel intelligible will require a fundamental restructuring of our social imaginary. Um, and that's precisely... Some the, form what, of cultural criticism. Yes. <laughs> um, and that's what we're going to be attempting next week. Um, so thank you so much for joining us. Um, please like us on, on Facebook. <laughs> That's always the last thing I say is please like us. Otherwise, Krang and his robot going to come get you. <laughs> We're going to get Foot Clan up here. <laughs> <laughs> no one understands it. Uh, uh, dear. Like us on of Facebook. the 80s. Uh, you can find us on... Uh, the 90s. Uh, as just search Find for them. the UCatastrophe. You can find us on Twitter um, at UCat underscore podcast. Um, please drop us a review. Um, share us around. Joel referred to us as illicit pleasure, an illicit pleasure <laughs> earlier on today. There's a lot of people that listen to us yeah. as, a, as a naughty little thing on the <laughs> side. Um, but we let are, your light shine, yeah. guys. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, please share us and, and like us and drop us a subscription. It'll help us get the audience that we long for. And deserve. And deserve. Thanks a lot. See you next week. <laughs>